everyone my name is Danny Benson I hope everyone had a fantastic summer I mean we're still in the summer swing a little bit but I am so happy to be here it's been a while I had to take you know summer break spend time with family and friends and get some R&R relaxation but I'm happy that I'm here again I kind of missed you guys and I kind of missed like just the swing of things again. Um, I just want to say thank you for joining our product uses. I am Danny Benson. Please like, share, and follow and comment. And if you know anyone who wants to come on the show because you want to give them their flowers, or for the men, I'm proud of you, bro. You want to give them the cigars, please contact me on my handle. That's Danny Benson. I'm proud of you, sis. You will find me if you do Google. On me, but I have an amazing guest here. I love her so much, and I'm kind of sad because I never met her mom. But through her, I know her mom is was super amazing, and she's in heaven right now, watching on Vanessa Bear Streeter. So this Saturday on on September sixteenth. Mary Bard, and um, Suarez is her middle name. Um, she was raised in Harlem, um, in Bronx, Harlem area, Washington Heights area. But she came to Long Island and she wanted to come and make a difference. My Twin Daughters is part of the Bennett Cultural Workshop, which they have done amazing job on these young men and women who come in there and learn how to dance technically, also with the academics of just aspiring to be good citizens um, on this earth. Vanessa has taken over what her mom started, this amazing program in wine dance. And I'm so excited to say that this Saturday we are dedicating a street on Levy Boulevard in wine dance. And my kids are going to be part of it. They're going to be singing in the chorus because Vanessa and the Vanettes has an amazing chorus. I'm telling you right now, if you want to find an amazing program for your children to join, this is the program because they are mothers to our babies. They grow our babies, give our babies self-esteem, belief in themselves. And at, at the end of it all, for senior year, if your kids last that long, and they should because it's an amazing program, they offer scholarships for your kids to go to college. So it's an amazing program in Wine Dance. Vanessa's mom started this program, and Vanessa has continued a great legacy of it. And I'm so proud to have her on. Vanessa has so many different hats, too. Um, she's a deputy. De um, I'm so excited. She's a deputy executive for Suffolk County. And this is their last couple of months left. I'm so sad, but Long Island has benefited for so much good work that Vanessa Streeter has done. And of course, Steve Ballone, the Suffolk County executor of, of course, Suffolk County. But we're here to talk about her mom and her dedication to the community because I want everyone out here to understand if you 
help your community rise, it is such a benefit to every single person that lives in the community. So volunteering, philanthropy, you know, joining in community activities will help the community and the children become better than what they were yesterday. So I am so proud to say, thank you, Vanessa, for coming on. Vanessa Street is here. How are you? Hello. Well, I have to start out with saying I'm proud of you, sis. Okay. So well, thank you, Vanessa. And I'm going to tell you something. Vanessa mentors my babies, and I'm so happy I found this program because they are excited to come to dance again, come to chorus again. They're excited about the mentees and mentors who have come back to give back to your amazing program. I've never seen a light in my children's eyes. I've met so many Vanettes, you know, people that I didn't know that was Vanettes. Everyone's like, we're Vanettes, we love Vanettes. And I just wanna say, I wanna dedicate this to your mom for giving her time and volunteering to start this amazing program that is still continuing as of 2023. And she started, I think, 1967? Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, once again, thank you so much for finding me worthy to bring on the show and talk about my mom and talk about the street renaming. Um, so yes, my mom created the Vanette's Culture Workshop in 1967. And the reason why she created it is she moved out to Wyandanche in 1965. Um, you know, moving from the city, they lived in the Bronx on Prospect Avenue. And they moved out here and my mother realized that there was a lack of extracurricular activities for uh, the children, uh, the youth of the community. So dance was her thing. She was a professional dancer. Um, she traveled the world an Afro-Brazilian group entitled Bebo and Suarez. So there was a duet, uh, Lon Fontaine and Mary Suarez. And so she wanted to, however, you know, the performing arts is what allowed her to be successful um, in life. And the discipline of the performing arts is what gave her structure in anything that she pursued. So she wanted to give back to the community that she felt you know, was lacking opportunity and particularly extracurricular activities. She wanted to give back to the community. So she started the Vanette's Cultural Workshop in 1967. In her, in our, I won't say her, because I was in the, uh, I wasn't in the home yet, but in our. <laughs> and so um, she started in our garage in 1967 and she had 12 students. And then the next year, the word just spread. And then she was like, I cannot keep these kids in my garage because now the 12 students have turned into 24 students. So then she, uh, my father actually, so we have to give credit to Venice Spirit as well because they were a power couple. And so my father started to look at um, organizations that we could partner with. And um, we are Catholic, so we belong to Our Lady of Miraculous Metal Church. And my father was the one who went to Father Hull at the time, who was the pastor, and asked if we could begin to use the parish hall. And from there, that's all she wrote. Um, so we had decades in the parish hall and I won't continue on, but that's a little bit of the story from the beginning of the creation of the Vanette's Culture Workshop in Wyandanche. So how did your mom, how did this make your mom feel like throughout the years of just growing? Like, did she ever see this even happening? How big I, it is? Right. Yeah, I, it's it's bigger now, but right. like as she was doing it, 
did she imagine that it was going to be this way? Well, I think she was a woman of high expectation and high goals and high mission, right? And and always being um, very consistent and cognizant of a spiritual, um, you know, foundation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour into the youth of our communities. And when we think about it, all of the things that we engage in within community to inspire, to support, to achieve, our youth are the future, right? So we need to pour into them now in order for them to be amazing adults, to be great citizens, to understand character, to understand ethics, and then to use the performing arts as the tool to teach them all of these qualities and help to enhance the qualities that they have. That was her goal. So whether that goal was accomplished and it only, you know, continued with 50 students or it grew, that was going to be God's mission for her work. So I think, you know, it wasn't a desire to, I'm going to grow this business to serve 500 kids. I'm going to create uh, an organization that's going to be a support to the youth of our communities. If it grows, it grows. And it is God leading and guiding her steps into what she's doing to you know, support the youth of our community. So I wouldn't say that she really thought that it was going to be, a, you know, an extremely large organization. I think she wanted to ensure that she had impact. And so the impact was really important. So, you know, but what happened was the word just spread. So I think when she first started, I think the lessons were like 50 cents a week that the kids paid. And I remember being in dance class when it was $2 a week. So you know, also she wanted to ensure that she was going to offer these services, but at a discounted rate so that it didn't matter what socioeconomic level you were at, you had the opportunity to participate in the performing arts because she knew the performing arts were going to be a great foundation for organization, structure, and discipline within your life that's going to help to make you a successful individual. So when did you start um, dancing in your mom's of uh, the Nets cultural workshop. How old so, were you? I was about three. I think my first solo I did, I was about three years old. And it was at the Huntington Townhouse. So the Huntington Townhouse no longer exists, but it was a major place for social gatherings. So that's where we used to have, that was the original place that we held our recitals. And so I was three years old and I actually did a duet with an older girl. Her name was Mickey Davidson. Um, who is now uh, a nationally renowned dancer. And um, I think it was Once in My Life um, by Stevie Wonder. And um, we did a duet. And from there, I was pretty much sold on the performing arts. Um, I loved dancing. I loved being able to express myself through dance. Um, and I loved just taking the opportunity. I, listen, I have to be honest, I like to perform too. So um, I think she was able to tap into something that she saw um, in me. And one of the first things, so that was a dance, but one of the first things my mom used as an educational tool was to use Black literature as a way, so interpretive poetry. So we, the book was called Black Voices. And I can, if I close my eyes, I can see that book right now. That included poems from Langston Hughes, from Nikki Giovanni, from Maya Angelou. And so each, you know, each week, not only was she teaching dance, but she was teaching interpretive, um, interpretive dance through poetry. So we learned a lot about our history and our culture through literature and black literature. 
So listen, I she was a you know I quintessential woman, I will say, and probably a woman, I won't say a woman before her time, but a woman who understood her purpose and her mission in life that the Lord gave her and was going to be steadfast in completing um that mission. So how does it feel that this Saturday that where she started this, her name is going to actually be on the street. Like, could you ever imagine that? So I'll be honest, I never really imagined it. We do have like a memorial garden on the corner of that street. Yeah. Um, and really with the town of Babylon, they had a policy that they only named streets after those veterans, fallen veterans. So veterans who are deceased. And so I never really pursued it, but the policy um, has subsequently changed. And, you know, I was like, it's due time. She's passed. She hasn't been on this earth for 30 years. Um, so I had a conversation with the supervisor of the town and he was like, of course we can do it. And literally from there, then the motion, you know, then all of the logistics went into motion. But I think it's very befitting and appropriate as to where we're renaming the street. It's the street where the parish hall resides. And we stayed mm -hmm. at the parish hall from 1968 until 2005. So we were there for over 30 decades. So it's most appropriate to name that street in her honor because every time somebody, anyone that anyone from Wyandanche, whether you were a Vanette or not, when you pass that street and you look at the parish hall, they think about the Vanette's cultural workshop and Mary Baird and what she contributed to the community. Yeah, it, it's definitely a staple because when I, I came into the wine dance community and all the girls like we're going to Vinette's, I remember picking them up there and I'm like, what's going on in there? It was like the place to be on Fridays and Saturdays. It was like, and, and they and they love being there because it formed, you help form a community. Correct. Correct. Which right. sometimes, especially now, you need more than more than ever now because people are not the same as I remember it used to be a village and how my kids feel when they come to the Vanette's cultural workshop, it, it feels like a village, like something that's missing because they're not used to it because we live on blocks where, you don't know, everybody It's not really a village anymore. It's not like everyone's looking out for every kid or you walking into everyone's house. Right. But when you go to this workshop, you're, you're, you're the executive director of the Vanette's cultural workshop. Yes. It feels like it's a family and everyone is cheering for each other to win and to be the best that they can be. Absolutely. I mean, to, to know that they're dedicating a street, I know people have been sending me messages like, hey, when is it? When is it? Like, is it 10? I'm, I'm like, it? look, did he, I'm like, be there at eight because knowing everybody, you're not right. going to get there. If you say 10, they're going to get right. there at 12 and they're probably going right. to miss the whole thing. Right. I'm like, just get there at eight, get some coffee, get right. lined up right. because she's left a stamp in so many people that live in wine dance and beyond. Actually, yes. I know so many adults now that used that went to the Vanette cultural workshop yes. who say they wouldn't be who they are today Absolutely. if they didn't experience the loving nature of being part of this organization at a very young age. That's true. And I feel that it's important for kids, whatever organization you belong to, to start early, right. to right. know what civility is, civic is, mm -hmm. hard work, determination, discipline. Yeah. So you have a son. Mm -hmm. Was your son part of the Vanette 
cultural workshop also. <laughs> so, you know, he's the son, right? So the one yes. thing I can say before I talk about him, as he's the boy, before I talk about him, the one unique, not the one unique, everything is unique about the Vanette's Cultural Workshop. But we had a such a lot, even larger boys division, male division than we do now. And we literally at one time had like 75 young men participating in dance. And that was unheard of. So what would happen is the boys would ride their bikes and peek in the window to watch the girls. And then my mother would go out and say, oh, well, since you watching the girls, that means you want to come in and dance, right? So then she'd bring them in. I'd probably say 50% of the time where they ended up joining. But what happened was the sports teams in the community in the area started seeing that the young men that were participating in dance were excelling in sports because they understood their bodies. They were stretching. They were participating in ballet. So then they started telling their young ones, are you in the Vanettes? You need to join the Vanettes because that's going to help you with your running. That's going to help you with your jumping. That's going to. So it, that's how it ended up really, you know, um, you know, really spreading like wildfire because you had the male, you know, the male leaders within community, particularly in the athletic um, realm, you know, encouraging men to dance. And it, we normalized something that was, you know, not necessarily normal and particularly for African-American men. So if you choose to dance, they're thinking you are of a certain way. No, I choose to dance because I choose to use this art form for expression. Mm -hmm. And so I say all of that to say, I did not force, and I'm not a believer of forcing your children to mm -hmm. do anything. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, I do force him to do, well, I did mm -hmm. you know, certain things when he was younger. But particularly in an extracurricular activity, you expose and then you allow them to decide. Mm -hmm. So I never forced him to join um, dance class. But, you know, when you talk about the things that we do, we have dance classes. But then over the summer, I always take the children to dance conventions so they can learn from nationally renowned teachers, uh, master teachers about all genres of dance. So I happened to bring him with me. He was seven. And I happened to bring him with me to um, uh, Dance Olympus. I'm sorry, Pulse Dance Convention. And so we're at the dance convention and my sister-in-law lives in the city. So she's coming to pick him up, but she was late. So I was like, well, I have to go take my class. So I left him with Miss Kitty, who was one of the matriarchs of the Vanette's Cultural Workshop. And I said, can you watch him until my sister-in-law comes? So she calls me while I'm in my class. I'm like, why is she calling me? She knows I'm dancing. She calls me to say, he's taking off his shoes and he got on the floor and he's dancing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> oh. So she's what? like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, I guess let him dance. I was like, I didn't pay registration for him, but let's see what happens. So he made that choice on his own. Um, he actually was part of the Vanette's Culture Workshop, but he was part of the drama division before. So he joined the drama division when he was about four years old. But he chose to start dancing at the age of seven. And then he continued through throughout high school. Wow, and he, he's a recent graduate of Howard University. So I am so proud of him, bro. I am so proud of Dallas because I know that is your heart. That is my and heart. And that is your heart. And I know he so very much is proud of you also. And yes. just to see like how much you give to the community, just like your mom, I'm going to say this to you. Are, you are making him to become an amazing husband. You better be. Because... Yes, because yeah, I, okay. I people people think I'm crazy when I say this. I'm, I sometimes I say sometimes there's not a lot of good men out there because mm -hmm. mothers sometimes have to take accountability to show the boys, you know, how to treat a woman, how to date, how you 
how you uh, what what is a man when it comes into a relationship so you're doing an amazing job so whatever woman is out there that gets to sweep him off his feet because you know he has to ask i think they're going to be lucky to have dallas as a husband i just wanted I to say so. that i i agree yes. he's a really good person you know when you talk about your children you love your children but i always tell people like i really like him like yeah. we have conversations we can talk about anything we are transparent with each other we're honest with each other and he is such a great support you know, he'll he'll ask me about my day when I come home. Like, Ma, how was your day? If he knows I had a press conference at work or if it's dance class and I'm having an issue and I need to I need to kind of triage the issue, he'll be like, Okay, tell me, and then you know, we'll we'll play it off back and forth. So he really is a, a person of good character. And that is a credit to myself and my husband, because my husband really ensured that our that our family had a, a solid spiritual foundation. So made sure that he went to Sunday school and we went to church at Abyssinian Baptist Church on 138th Street in Odell. Um, so making sure that we were there every you know, every Sunday at nine o'clock in the morning so that he could be in Sunday school ensuring that he had a solid spiritual foundation. And, you, and it's, it's funny that you say that. I think that's like the missing part I, we grew up in, I think our generation grew up in the church more than this generation right now. And I think the, that is like the, the disconnect mm -hmm. because I felt like that's where my morality came from. Of course, my parents gave it to me, but the church reinforced it. Right. And, and my, that's where my community came from. Like, I didn't have to know you to treat you with respect and love right. and care. So I, so I just think that is like the missing part of not every kid is like this, but I feel like they the the morality is not there. So kids are on a different wavelength of just, you know, like what do you advise kids who are not grown up in the church? Because so your I, son was. So what do you say to kids who don't believe in religion, or the parents don't take them to church, or the parents are working two jobs, three jobs? Like so what? It doesn't, you know, because of the society in which we live, the high cost of living in Long Island, you know, sometimes it's just not feasible, right? But there are opportunities via, you know, that's why we have technology. So there are opportunities via the television, via the internet. Mm -hmm. But really at the workshop, you know, you know that we, you know, we talk about spirituality. Every finale is a finale, is a gospel finale. Because at the end of the day, everybody needs to understand that you know, it is God who is allowing for us to be. It is God that allows us to continue for 56 years in serving the youth of our community. And I'm not ashamed to say that. That is a conversation that I will have mm -hmm. with students on a continual basis. Sometimes when they're struggling, even if they don't have a relationship with God or, you know, don't understand, you know, Christianity or, you know, a religion, have a conversation. Like he can always hear you. He's omnipresent have a conversation. And sometimes we have helped lead families to Christ. Like we've helped lead families to decide, you know what? I think, a, you know, a strong um, spiritual foundation is important. So I speak about God all the time. I speak about how the Lord leads and guides my steps. I will not shy away from it. And so I think a lot of times the students take on that persona as well. Mm -hmm. and so they decide and they sometimes go home to their parents and say like, can we go to church? Like, what church can we go to? Or now, like I say, you have the opportunity to be able to watch, you know, via the various modes of technology that we have as well. Yeah, on online, I'm, cause, cause because of COVID, right. a lot of churches decided to come online. So I right. tell like my kids all the time, you wanna be on the iPod? 
Mm -hmm. on Sundays, you could dedicate yourself to God and go online and let's go on to the program and, and, and just build your character, just build who you are because society has so much going on these days that you need like a a foundation, you need that foundation of morality because I want you to go out there and treat others the way that you would Mm -hmm. want to be treated. So it starts from home, actually, it actually starts from home. So are you excited? Um, we talked about that, the fact that I'm, I'm sad is it's, it's Steve Ballone's mm-hmm. last year and also yours last year. What have you done? You've done so much for the community. Can you say some things of that you have done in the last 12 years for this yeah. amazing community in Suffolk County? So I've been fortunate to be um, within government and I'll be honest with you. Um, I met the county executive when he was supervisor of the town of Babylon in 2005. And I actually set up a meeting to meet with him to talk about the Vanette's Culture Workshop in reference to securing a space or land for like our own building. And the next day he offered me a job. And I said, I'm not looking for a job, I have a job. And he goes, but no, it was the passion that you spoke about the Vanette's Culture Workshop and your commitment to community. I want you on my team. So I, I, you know, I need a, a communications director. My background is not communications, my background is finance. So he says, I need yeah. a communications director and I think you would be great. And I'm like, I, I don't know anything about communications. And he's like, <laughs> he's like let me tell you, you do. Totally. You don't know that you do, but based on my the conversation that we had and the interaction that we had. So, and I never really wanted to work in government because I felt like, you know, there's just so much bureaucracy, but I realized how important it is for representation within government. So I've been blessed to be in town government, local government, Then I worked in a quasi-government for the Long Island Power Authority, serving as their vice president of communications. And then in 2012, I went to the county, first serving as the director of communications and now serving as a deputy county executive. And the representation in government is extremely important, especially for diverse voices. So we are not of the majority as it pertains to the population, but you have government is in service to all. So if you don't have representation in high levels of government at the decision-making um, table, at the policy mm-hmm. table, then how do we ensure that everybody is being served you know, in a fair, just, and equitable way? Mm-hmm. We can't ensure that if everybody doesn't have a voice. So, and you know, I'm blessed to be able to be at the tables that I am. So, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity. And the other thing is, Um, the county executive and I have a a mutual respect for each other. So he knows that I'm not going to implement anything or do anything that is going to be, you know, that's not going to be done right, first of all, that all I's are dotted and T's are crossed. But the other thing is he knows what I'm going to do is going to be for the benefit of people. And sometimes those that have been marginalized, under-resourced and underserved, you know, sometimes you have to go above and beyond to ensure that they are being served and serviced. So. I think one of the most, one of the initiatives and one of the things that I led within the county that I'm most proud of and probably was one of the hardest um, work-related um, initiatives that I've ever had to deal with in my entire life. And I worked in investment banking for Goldman Sachs. I worked 18 hours a day. I, this was the most difficult, and that was police reform and reinvention within Suffolk County. Um, Governor Cuomo in, two, in 2020, after... Um, the killing of George Floyd, um, issued an executive order 203, which required all law enforcement agencies to engage in a process of reviewing policies, police reform, and reinvention, reinventing policing, looking at it through a different lens. 
and the county executive asked me to lead this effort. And um, I, you know, I definitely accepted um, the offer. Um, I appreciated the confidence that he had for me to lead this effort. And he knew that I was going to be true to the effort. It wasn't going to be something that was just going to be a facade. We really were going to look at policies. We really go were going to look at policing and really implement um, changes that are beneficial to helping to um, establish and enhance community relations. So it, that was like a seven and a half month process where I led a task force of 37 individuals from all walks of life. That was, you know, uh, the police command staff, the, P, the PBA, um, you know, community leaders that have been at the thorn of the side of law enforcement and really trying to keep all of that together, helping us, you know, educate each other about our experiences, because a lot of times we can be on two ends of the spectrum, never really talk. So we don't understand the experience and the lived experience of the other. But by being at a table and being true to this process, we ended up learning a lot about each other. And, you know, sometimes, listen, some people may have never been stopped by the police during a traffic stop and others have been stopped 50 times. And for that person that has been stopped 50 times to share the story. And I had one person tell me I stopped driving because I, I was tired of being stopped by officers. Well, Vanessa, can you can you hold that thought one second? Right. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. Hi, and we're back. So please finish your, your thoughts um, on policing. So just, um, but by having everyone sitting at the table, understanding the current policies and how we can improve them and enhance them, but having that done with law enforcement, with the police union, with civic leaders, with clergy, with advocates, all at the same table. And listen, we had, I think, 24 committee meetings, you know, 32 subcommittee meetings, um, legislative meetings, but we really got to a point that the final um, document that we produced, which was the Suffolk County Police Reform and Reinvention Plan, was a great foundation for upon which we build. And so you know, a couple of things that came out of that plan was park, walk, and talk. So park, walk, and talk is now that officers, you know, once a week during their tour, they get out of their cars and actually engage with community so that you understand community. Mm -hmm. So the little boy that I see on the street, I might pick up a basketball and start playing with him, or I might go into the bodega and have a conversation with the owner of the bodega. Understanding how building relationships helps to break down misconceptions and preconceived notions we have about the other and allows us to coexist. So that's one of the things, looking at traffic stops, collecting more data so that we would know, you know, what is taking place in traffic stops and do we see um, a desperate impact on particular communities, um, particular communities of color. It's, you know, looking at our mental health response and saying, you know what, officers have some, you know, crisis intervention training, but they're not trained social workers. So now looking at how do we triage a call that's coming in from a, a person who's going through a mental health crisis and now you know, collaborating with a mental health organization that can now triage that call for them and get those that are going through mental crisis into case management, into referrals and resources that are actually going to help them and not have it be punitive as it pertains to engagement with law enforcement. So I have to say out of all of the things that I've done, that's probably the one that I'm most proud of. Um, but there's a multitude of others, but I will not continue to talk. I will turn it back over to the host. <laughs> 
No, it's I, I love the way you're talking because I feel that you are in the right path of police, policing and community. Um, there, there is a lot of assumptions made because I've come to realize that we all go, we all might work together, but a lot of us go to our own neighborhoods and some neighborhoods are more diverse than others. Yes. And people get to only experience different cultures, sometimes through social media or TV. So the perceptions that they perceive sometimes, depending on what channel you're watching or what they're showing, it does sometimes indicate that, you know, Afro-Americans are very violent, angry, commit crimes. Because if I didn't have experience with any other culture and I just watched TV, right. I would just make that assumption because it seems like that's what they always show, mm -hmm. like the negative parts of the African-American culture. But I'm here to tell you and the world that 99% of us is very boring, mm -hmm. right? We, we want the pursuit of happiness. We mm -hmm. want to have a home. We want to have the best education for our kids. Mm -hmm. we, wanna, we want the American dream. But people like us, they don't like to showcase because we're boring. We don't get clicks, right? Mm -hmm. So they like to showcase sometimes what society perceives of, of us. And that is the Channel 6 News has to lead with you see a Black person committing a crime and then all of a sudden you feel that, oh my God, they all do that. Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you right now, you said something very interesting, Vanessa. It's all about communication. Correct. It's all about talking to one another and not assuming what you see on TV is actually the reality on the home front. Correct. That's why when I go to supermarkets, I smile at everyone and I give you them the impression that we're not, I know you're looking at me and you're we're, holding a purse or something, but honestly, we are not what you see on TV. It's just for ratings. I tell people that all the time. Like if you communicate with us, you talk to us, you talk to our children, right. you, you'll find out we're just the same as you. And right. what is the difference is where we're culturally are from. Mm -hmm. Our history, of course, is different. Right. And of course, it's just a shading of our skin. Right. But if we can, as Americans, unite and understand that we all want the same things, and have empathy for the things that past generations have gone through mm -hmm. because it is a pain right. that still exists. Right. I think Americans can, can see that we have more in common than we don't have in common. Right. You know, when you, when you have the dialogue and when you have the discussions, you know, I, I've always felt like, you know, some people say like, I'm not a role model, right? Like that was the whole athlete thing. Like I'm not a role model. I believe that I am. And I, I, I walk in my purpose, I walk in my truth, and I also want to ensure that I'm always representative of my culture and my heritage. And in having dialogue and conversation, like I said, it breaks down barriers, it, you know, it removes misconceptions and preconceived notions you have about the other, and particularly in Long Island, because it's the third most segregated area of the country, like you said, when you go home, our, you know, our, our community is a, a lot of times homogeneous. So then really it's only interaction in work, at work or at school. And those are limited interactions. You're, you're there for a purpose. You're not there just to have, you know. Um, conversations, conversations all day long. Right? So I think that, you know, and I'll tell you, to be honest with you, when it goes back to the Vinette's Culture Workshop, I tell the students the same thing. You know, help to break down barriers, help to, you know, help to address misconceptions people have about each other and just be good people. 
at the end of the day, even if somebody's not being good to you, be good pe be a good person to them because you never know what someone is going through and oh why God. someone is acting the way that they do. So just be a good person. Smile. Like you said, I smile at everyone because yeah. really, I'll tell you, my mission in life is really to make people smile and feel good because that makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I think when we go back to the government perspective, it's just, you know, representation is important. And, you know, there are a couple of other things I've worked on, fair housing laws. Like we know that there's been redlining and making sure that real estate professionals understand um, fair housing and fair housing discrimination laws. And then also making sure that community understands what their rights are as it pertains to housing. Um, and are they being discriminated against? And then engaging in paired testing. And paired testing is kind of like when you send um, uh, individuals out to see if there's discrimination. Like if a, you send out a black person to see if they can actually rent this apartment or are they being discriminated against? And then you send a person of another color to that same apartment complex and see if they can actually um, secure the home. So I've been able to do those things in government. I'm currently engaged in a disparity study, which provides the legal framework for establishing um, minority and women-owned business enterprise goals as part of our contracting process. We realize, and our procurement process, we realize that a lot of um, uh, organizations or companies of color are not doing business with government. They're not getting those government contracts. So that's because, you know, when you think about it, you know, if we if we take it back a couple of decades, you think about it when you reach out to someone because you need a service performed or you need, um, you know, you need a service performed or you need an item, you reach out to who you know. But if you're if your group is homogeneous, you're going to keep reaching out to the same people. So you have to figure out how do you how do you create a system that allows you to reach beyond the people that you know and brings that information to your fingertips. So if you're looking, if you're a prime contractor and you're looking for a subcontractor, we have a listing on, on Suffolk County. So you can look for subcontractors and see who you can partner with, but also making sure that we have requirements as part of our contracting process so that minority and women-owned businesses and service-disabled veteran-owned businesses can ensure that they're going to be able to work with the county and get county contracts because we know that can change the trajectory of, of, of businesses and of families and of individuals by securing government contracts. Well, you, you said something interesting. We live in Long Island. Why is, and but we live in New York and we're right. in the, why is Long Island so segregated? I, I just, I don't understand sometimes. I, 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 well, if sometimes you go back I, to, I mean, if you think about like the history of Levittown, and how Levittown was created. And, you know, it was, um, you know, Levittown was created after um, World War II. And so they were giving out, um, you know, loans, you know, and, and mortgages. But guess what? You couldn't, people of color couldn't get those loans and mortgages. So there were covenants that were in, you know, the, the covenants in the development saying that you could not be, you could not live there. So when you talk about how does it become segregated, it's because of those covenants that existed. So, you know, and also we didn't have like master development. It was kind of like you come out, you see a plot of land, you can purchase that plot of land, build your home. So you do have to be very intentional about what you're doing to ensure equity and access. And that wasn't just a thought in the 1940s and 50s, right? Like the people weren't thinking that. They were thinking you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and no. you get it moving. But guess what? If my bootstraps are all the way down to my ankles, but someone else's bootstraps 
are right at their hips, it's going to be easier for you to pull up from your hips than it is from your ankles. And you have to realize that the systemic, you know, racism that has existed in our society does, you know, does put a barrier for people to, for people of color to continue to excel and succeed. But people have been able to, and I think that, you know, we have to just ensure it doesn't, it's not going to be one or two. It should be opportunity for everyone. Now, if you don't want to work hard, that's on you. But I want to know that if I work hard, I can Mm -hmm. achieve success. So to know that there's not a barrier there, if I'm putting in the work, then I can get the result. Yeah, I I, I feel the same way. I, I have hope for Long Island. I know that they were trying to pass, you know, building more homes because a lot of people my age group are leaving Long Island because it's so unaffordable. And sometimes I wish the communities would understand because I, I read articles, they're thinking if, they, if there's low income housing that comes in, it attracts black and brown communities and they feel like it's going to bring their neighborhoods down so they don't want it. But something has to give because if you want the kids who grew up in Long Island to stay on Long Island with the rise of property taxes, with inflation and everything like that. I don't know how they keep a younger generation staying on Long Island because right. a lot of people are moving down in the South where it's a little bit cheaper. Yeah. I mean, what, since you guys are leaving now and I don't know what's next for Suffolk County, what would be the best avenues before we leave this program would help the success of keeping young people on Long Island well, to grow their families? So I think you need to have, it's a couple of things. You do need to have affordable housing and affordable housing is, you know, affordable housing is going to what's going to keep, whether you're white, black, blue, or green, right? That's going to keep your children here. So you need affordable housing and you need that commitment from all of the towns to ensure that when you have housing developments that are being built, there's a particular percentage that is allocated to affordable housing in that particular development. The second thing that you need is you need to be able to attract business here. So you do have to provide businesses tax incentive tax incentives, particularly when we're talking about the burgeoning businesses of technology, AI. We're talking about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. We're talking about manufacturing. We have to ensure that the businesses are here so that the young people want to stay because they can get a good paying job and then they can afford you know, to live in the same mm-hmm. place where they're working and playing. I think transit-oriented development is important as well because young people, are they don't need a car, right? Like if I can hop on the train and I can go. Yeah. So when we talk about yeah, water yeah. rising development, that's a development that's a transit-oriented development that allows you to live right near the train station. If you want to work in New York City, you can. You don't need a car to do so. You have storefronts on the bottom so that whatever you need, you can get access to. So it really is about very thoughtful and intentional development that's going to keep people, young people, on Long Island. I think the other thing that we have to look for, look look at is workforce development training. And when we look at workforce development training, don't just train people for jobs that are going to be making $15 an hour. Train them for jobs that are going to be making $50 an hour, have the trajectory to make $50 an hour, because that's how you really empower people and families. And that's how you can change the trajectory and the cycle of poverty. So the other thing is when you're doing workforce development training, right? So sometimes you say, okay, you have to come to this program and it's a certification and it takes you six months to get it. But I don't, I can't afford to do a program for six months and not make any money, you know, to feed my family. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at programs that are earn and learn. So we've done a couple of those programs in Suffolk County. Well, is while you're learning, you're earning. 
so that now I can say, you know what? I can leave this job that really doesn't have any future for me. I can take these courses. I can get the certifications and the licensing that I need, but I also am still getting financial support while I'm learning so that I can help take care of my family. And then when I complete, then I get into a job that's actually going to have a true career trajectory for myself. And that in turn helps everyone. So that's beneficial not only to that family, but it's beneficial to the entire community. And it keeps the money on Long Island too. It keeps right. the money in the communities too, right. instead of them leaving the community, spending money outside of the community and then coming back. Right. It, it, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just diversity, it's just a win-win for everyone. Right. So is. I wanna say thank you so much, Vanessa Baird Streeter coming on i'm proud of you sis i am so proud of you i'm so proud of your mom i am so thankful that people like you are giving back to the community because the community needs it now more than ever because now you're making little vanessa's you're making <laughs> little mary bart because then because you because you lead by example correct correct and that's what and people need to, to understand that. Students have said that to me like our alumni you know, they're like, Miss Vanessa, I have one alumni like that's a CEO of an energy company in Chicago. And she's like, Miss Vanessa, I just watched you and I watched what you did. And then I just replicated it. I said, girl, you have gone past me. So I don't want you just to be what I am. I want you to be better than what I am. So if I can serve as that role model and help to inspire, help to pour into um, our young people and allow them to understand and know the greatness that they can achieve. Then, then I have completed my mission and goal in life is to ensure that the next generation is better than the generation before. And open, open the door. You know, open, open the, the door, door and passing the baton. Correct. Like I always tell people, our community will rise once we learn how to pass the baton instead mm -hmm. of making everyone start at the starting line. If you make everyone start at the starting line, you're not going to get far. But we as a people need to start learning how to pass the baton. Like wherever I'm at, I want you to start here with all the tools that I gave you and run even further out, run cool. even harder out as I tell people all the time. And when you keep doing that, you pass it from one generation to the other, all we're gonna do is have growth Correct. and have love and have community because it keeps spreading like wildfire. Yeah, so we need, I'm so proud of your mom. I, I, I'm sad I've never got to meet her. Mm -hmm. But I feel her presence here with me right now. And I'm so glad that God made me cross your path and my baby's path because yes. you and your team are influencing these babies to be the greatest thing ever for the next generation to come because they're babies now, but these are going to be the future leaders. Exactly. So you are building leaders. Your team are building leaders. I'm going to tell everybody right now, please, Vanessa, give your handles for Vanette's cultural workshop for the viewers, please. Sure. So we are on Facebook, Vanette's, um, B-E-N-E-T-T-E-S, cultural workshop. We are on Instagram, Vanette's, B-E-N-E-T-T-E-S, cultural workshop. You can check our website out. Um, and please follow us because, you know, I, I like to highlight our students. I like to highlight the great things that they're doing and our alumni as well, because it's important for our current students to see with the alumni and what they have achieved. So they go, oh, they are Vanette too. And listen, you know, for the Vinette um, ecosystem, it's a big one. I don't think there's anywhere that I can go in the United States and sometimes in the country that you don't run into a person who has been a Vinette or is related to a Vinette. 
So and do you have open, is it open registration right now? So if anyone's watching this who might want to have the kids join Vanessa, is it still open registration or it's closed? So it's not really open. Dance is closed, but we have open registration for our charm and etiquette classes. So we didn't even really talk about that, but we have charm and etiquette classes. We have vocal instruction, and then we also have dance instruction. So our charm and etiquette classes are open and our vocal instruction classes are open, but we are filled um, as it pertains to our dance classes, except for the ages of 13 and up. And then if you can't get in this year, obviously next year, there's always next year. So please follow so you will get more information on the Vanette's Cultural Club. Thank you so much for coming on. Proud of you, sis. Thank you, viewers. And have a wonderful night, everybody. Speak soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye.